0: Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes. Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. Sondheim probably said it best. I have sailed the world, beheld its wonders from the Dardanelles to the mountains of Peru, but there's no place like London. (laughs) I mean, if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. It is a city that I have been lucky enough to spend some time in in real life, but I have spent so much imaginary time there. There's something about it, and it's certainly not the only city like this in the world, but it is one of the few where you can traverse centuries, millennia even, in a single step. There is something about having all of that aggregated time that I think lends itself to story. There's so much to be found there, and certainly... Over the years, so many incredible stories, stories that are so deeply important to me, stories that are deeply important to the speculative fiction field have come out of thinking about or wandering about that city. And of course, Sondheim also had it right. There's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled with people who are filled with shit and the vermin of the world inhabit it and it goes by the name of London. It is a city that contains multitudes. And today we are going to take three discrete versions of that story. It's a hyperlocal episode. So make yourself a good cup of tea, preferably from Fortnum and Mason, if you have some to hand, and take a seat as we head first to not one, not two, not even three, but four Shades of London. <laughs> V.E. Schwab is the author of over 20 books, including the acclaimed Shades of London series, the Villains series, the City of Ghosts series, Gallant, and of course, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. When not haunting Paris streets or trudging up English hillsides, she lives in Edinburgh, Scotland, usually tucked into the corner of a coffee shop, dreaming up monsters. Victoria is one of those writers who, once you are introduced to her work, you cannot go back. She is an incredible writer, an incredible imagination, and I was so thrilled at the news that she was returning to her set of magical Londons in a new series, kicking off with This Falls, The Fragile Threads of Power. It takes place seven years after the events of A Conjuring of Light, and it does pick up with our old friends, Kel, Lila, Rye, Alucard, It introduces new ones, too, like a young girl called Tess, who has, let's call it an unusual magical ability, or another young girl named Kosika, who has taken the throne of White London with her own unusual magical ability. This book pulls off that incredible feat of being not only a return to a beloved world and beloved characters, but introducing brand new ones and setting them all on a course in a world that feels like seven years have passed without us ever feeling like we spent any time at all away from the world. When we sat down, I asked Victoria about characters and coming back to this London and these people.
1: I really believe that characters should be written so that you believe that they're real people, meaning that their existence should not feel contingent upon you reading them. You should believe that when you finish a story, when you put it down, those characters don't cease to exist. You are simply no longer invited to follow. Characters, when I write them, even when I finish writing them, they don't cease to exist for me. Yeah. They kind of live in my head. I still see things and think, oh, what would Addie think about that? And so I had Kel and Lila and Ryan Elliker just kicking around in there. For several years, and so the question was, okay, I've got new characters and a new storyline, but for our existing characters, can I make you believe that they have been there for the seven years that you have not? I wanted it to feel like coming home. That's what it is. At the end of the day, getting to write the book—well, I mean, look, getting to write the book was a fraught experience. I thought Addie was going to be this thing that ruined my career. Like I was a fantasy writer. And then Addie was this departure. And I was like, what am I doing? This is a disaster. And then coming from Addie back to shades, I was like, what am I doing? This is a disaster. So I had all of this anxiety. My biggest fear was that people were going to say, this is unnecessary or the last books were better, all these things. And so for me, when I got that out of my head and I sat down to just write, the thing that I experienced overwhelmingly was this joy of coming home when I finally got to write the first scene where Lila and Kel are shown to us again on this boat, I was like, I've missed you. And I'm very aware of being a slow storyteller in some ways. But I want you to care so deeply about what happens to them. And in order to do that, I have to let them breathe. I have to let them have their time. And I think it would have been a disservice to slam us into the plot and not give us some of what happened in those seven years. Because it's also a it's a big complicated plot. There's a mm-hmm. supernatural element and a political element and there're two different forms of villainy happening. And you know, it's a long con. And so in the immediate, I I knew some readers would like wanna see just some good moments. And I think I let myself have that. I think it went into the writing of the book too. I approached the writing of it in a slightly different way of just like
2: immersion
1: mm-hmm. in this world. And so I wanted to make these characters feel whole. It was also this difficult balance to strike of I got to make you care about the new characters. How do I make you feel invested not only in these characters that you've had a trilogy to fall for, but brand new ones? That's terrifying.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the success is about the world. None of them feel either like intruders where it's like, get away, I want to go back to my friends. Or like, you know, the, the new cast coming in to replace the old cast. There's just this feeling of like, uh, I'm always reticent to use film terminology around books but it's like the camera pans slightly to the left exactly and you're just like that person's just over there they are a fully realized part of the world
1: there was a hard thing to do and I resisted it a lot but Kosika who's one of our new characters is queen of white London I kept trying to speed her up and then I was like no what's kind of delightful is that for three quarters of this book she just seems to be having a really nice time and for anyone who's read my books you should know that's like a massive (laughs) flag there's this scene that happens very late in the book with like a cherry tree and they're just like having a nice time and I just kept thinking oh god is this ruining it but I'm like no it's because everything else is going to shit and like you should know that it's a pretty bad sign when characters seem to be just enjoying themselves it never lasts but I kind of started leaning in a little bit to the juxtaposition of like couldn't we in one world have everything very on the surface falling down and in the other world have a much more insidious planting of seeds
0: I was reading an interview that you did a while ago. I do not remember where it was, but you had said something about, and you've sort of mentioned it already, that feeling of like, I want each book to be able to stand alone. I want somebody to be able to read any book in the series and feel like they got a coherent story out of it. And I loved the way that this managed to hold both things at once in a way that is so rare in serialized fiction. I think
1: that's, I get, as a reader, I get very persnickety in series when each book does not have an internal arc, because we have like the big picture arc, the arc that goes across however many books the series is. But each individual installment has a miniature arc within it. And I think that series works best when we close a miniature arc and then start the next one. I get really ticked off when I read a series where especially the first book in an arc takes us two thirds of the way. And then it's just like, dun, dun, dun. And I'm like, no, that's not where the dun, dun, dun goes. The dun, dun, dun goes after you've given me an exhale, after you've given me some modicum of closure. Because obviously there are dun, dun, dun moments at the end of Fragile Threads, but we have done something internal as well. Nothing ever good lasts ever in my (laughs) world. So we should assume that whatever has been done at the end of that book is not actually as clean closed as it seems. But, But yeah, I think I want always to just feel... Like there's a holistic quality to a story. That's why when I write standalones, they tend to have kind of a circuitous narrative. They tend to come Mm -hmm. all the way back to their beginning and everyone's slightly changed, but we almost end in the same place that we started. And I think then for series, maybe it's because I plan backwards that I'm just like, okay, I know the ending. So like, that's the thing I feel most confident in is the point where I'm going to leave you.
0: So I am both a Virgo and a panzer, which is kind of a terrible combination. I very often when I am writing have that experience of thinking that I know where a story is going or that I know the path I'm on at least. And then suddenly I look up and realize that I'm in a field three counties away from where I thought I was supposed to be. And I'm like, what the fuck? How did this happen? I find really appealing what you are talking about with structure and planning. And I'm curious if the story, how do I want to say this? Does the story ever take over and pull you in some direction that you don't know where it's going? Or does that happen at a different point? in the creative process for you.
1: It's such a good question. The thing is, I plan everything, but it's less from a joy place and more from an anxiety place. Uh-huh. I'm the kind of writer, it might just be like 24 books in now, I'm the kind of, <laughs> kind of writer that like needs a little psychic assurance. And I think having a plan gives me the psychic assurance because I love to quit. I don't quit. I have no trunk novels, but the urge to quit uh-huh. is so ever-present that at least once a day, I'm like, I could move to Iceland and race goats. We'd be fine, right? <laughs> like, I don't need to do it. And so everything I do is to create a strong footing so that I don't like jump off. <laughs> but on the note, on the idea of like, well, where does the joy come in and the discovery? I absolutely have this like beautiful time of discovery. For me, that's the outline. The mm. discovering the outline, put, for me, outlining is something that takes three to six months. It is me like brainstorming quite literally, it feels like sometimes the whole book. Beat for beat for beat for beat for beat. Uh, And I'm playing, like, choose your own adventure of, like, how can we get from A to B? Okay, what are 16 ways we can get from A to B? What is the highest stakes way we can get from A to B? And so all of that wandering and all of that creative play, it's my favorite part. But it happens for me before I ever put pen to draft. So I have this, like, beautiful six-months of blue sky planning that ends up with like what other people would probably call a skeleton draft, like a a 50,000 word plan. And then over the course of drafting, I'm taking all of these like scene by scene outlines and I'm creating chapters out of them. And that was what I did for Fragile Threads as well.
0: A Darker Shade of Magic was the first book of yours that I read. And I mean, this is something that I have since found is true in so many of your books. But I just remember Kel's coat being so riveting to me. Like, it was such a cool gadget, such a cool invention. And I feel like you have such a wonderful touch with those little things. Sometimes they are plot related. Sometimes they are character related. Sometimes they're just set dressing. It's things like the coat or the backward glance or Tess's little owl skeleton friend. There's this tactile quality to your books. And I find that particularly true in this series and in these different Londons. You know, you mentioned loving metaphors and descriptions. There's this feeling that I could go there. Every time I have been to our gray London, I'm always just wondering if, you know, maybe around the corner.
1: I always say that the thing that I want most as a writer is to instill doubt. I like want you to doubt your reality. I don't need you to doubt it wholesale, but I want to like crack the facade of our assumptions about reality. And that means I'm definitely more of a C.S. Lewis than a Tolkien. Tolkien being the kind of writer that you will only ever go to Middle Earth through the pages of that book. But what C.S. Lewis teaches you is that you have a piece of furniture somewhere in your house, and if you find the right one, you're going to find a way out. And so portal fantasy has always been deeply appealing to me because it creates proximity of magic. And I move through the world wanting it to be stranger than it is, wanting to believe in those cracks and find them. And so I think that is the most powerful force in my writing, this desire to make it feel real, to make you believe that it could be. So that if you're, you know, it's late at night and you're tired and you're thinking like, oh man, I I, I want you to believe. I want you to wonder. I think that's what it is.
0: Yeah. And there's something about London too, in particular, right? I mean, I'm a thousand percent an Anglophile. And so that's part of it. And there are tons of other beautiful, wondrous, magical cities around the world. But there's something about London and this idea that there are multiple Londons, which all look completely different but at the same time they're all london it's like of course of course london is that place and i just i really wanted to know what it is about that city that calls to you?
1: I think it's twofold. On the one hand, my mom's English and I went to England for the first time when I was 12. And I remember just being absolutely shocked by the presence of so much history, by the Mm -hmm. layering of time we went to Canterbury, which is where my family's from. And I remember going to a cemetery. This is like a very impactful thing to happen when you're like 12 or 13. Of course, I was in a cemetery too. It was like very much my vibe. (laughs) And I realized that every single tombstone in the cemetery was older than my country, which was like immediately mind blowing to me and I could touch it. Then I went to London and it was like this feeling like you would turn a corner and you could imagine a century changing. Like you just felt like you were on the verge of touching history in this way, of being folded into it. So I think I was amazed by that. Then there was a very ornery part of me that was like every fantasy novel is set in London. And I'm going to fake it out because like 90% of my book is set in the London that doesn't exist. The third part was that I was designing, rather than design multiple worlds with unique geographies, the thesis behind the Shades of Magic series and Threads of Power is that there are four worlds modeled on the same world. It's just different bodies, same bones. And so that meant that I was going to pick a location that existed in our world and I was going to strip it down and build three other worlds on top of it. And for accessibility, because so much of my storytelling, I want it to be accessible. I don't want a glossary. I don't want a map. I don't want anything that makes a demand of the reader before they engage with a story. I come from an anime school of world building. You learn as you go. It drops you in and you figure it out. But to do that, I was like, okay, I know it's Eurocentric, but like I need to pick a city that I could strip down to its most basic geographic element. And the thing about London is you can strip it down to a north bank, a south bank, and a river. The other nice thing was that London is a place I spend a lot of time. And one footstep in our world is the same geographic distance as one footstep in Red London and one step in White. So when I was designing space, I could literally walk through London and then imagine where I would change things for Red London and for White London. But it was still geographically coherent.
0: Oh man, that's so cool. That's so, so cool. <laughs> I lo- it's like it's exactly my kind of I'm just like, "Yes. Yeah. That's awesome." I it also reading, uh, you know, um none of us get to pick the times that we live in. Sure. Reading this book uh ar- <laughs> around the same time that the coronation was happening really had me thinking about the monarchy. Yeah. In a way that, like, I think I was primed coming into it to be thinking about the monarchy. And it's not to say that I wasn't thinking about the monarchy in the Shades books, but there's something...
1: We're in it now. We're... I mean, this is the yeah. thing, Rai was just a rakish prince in the Shades books, and he's now, eight, like, a 28-year-old, 27-year-old who has the burden of an entire kingdom on his shoulders that he didn't even want. Yeah. And he's vilified for it.
0: And that then you have this other version with Kosika and what she's yeah. doing and the the way that it is both so appealing like there is a little bit of that like demagoguery thing oh, yeah
1: she's an acolyte
0: I liked that you were really pushing buttons because mm-hmm. I think it, it's hard in 2023 to look at the monarchy in any monarchy anywhere and be like yes unequivocally a good idea yeah but also there's that pull towards it that thing of like well there is something nice about i can yeah. look at that person who's they're the answer
1: well and it's interesting because it's uh, you know for rye for red london it's humanizing mm-hmm. He's one person who feels extremely alone and also his family is at risk and also there's a question of is he to blame for what's happening in red london right now and like also is he still dead like is there like <laughs> part of this is that like You know, someone, I'm not going to name names in the book, but like someone would call into question his legitimacy because of his interruption to the nature of magic, which is that he shouldn't be alive. And like with Kosaka, what was so exciting that I never predicted when I sat down, I truly didn't, this is what I say that character sometimes surprises more than plot, is that I didn't really realize I was going to end up writing this quite adult book about two adolescent girls who just have innate, extreme power. And it's more about the systems around them that are trying to turn that power to their own. I mean, Kosika is 14, and she is put on the throne simply because she's the same kind of person that the king was. And she's supposed to be a puppet. And then at 10, decides that she's not actually going to be a puppet. And then you have Tess, who is 15, a runaway with this incredible ability to actually change the nature of reality and all she wants to do is like be a tinkerer and so they're such a weird juxtaposition one is in a position of absolute power one is a no name and they are both like probably the strongest characters in their worlds but yeah i think it's i think i was really interested in this concept of like the power behind the power Always. I mean, when we looked at like Shades of Magic, Kel was the power behind the power. He was the threat behind the throne that kept everyone in line. And now Rai is the power because he's unkillable. And Kosika is the power, but she's not the power behind the power, you know? And yeah. so everything is just about who actually has power. And then you have Ned in Grey London. He's just like trying to manifest <laughs> a flame. <fire laughs> yeah, he's like, look, Kel, I made a, fi- I made a fire.
0: <laughs> it does. Oh, God, that... That moment where I was just like, Me
1: too! Like just that like
0: that feeling of like if I try really hard, maybe magic.
1: Ned is us. What's so yes. funny is that Ned was supposed to be on page for like a paragraph in a darker shade of magic and then never seen again. And I just realized that he was this perfect conduit for the reader. Like he's <laughs> our he's our Mary Jane. Like he's our character that's just supposed to like let the the average reader be like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want <love> magic.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about another one of the interviews I did for this season was with Emily Tesh, and we were talking mm-hmm. about some desperate glory.
1: God, that- I love that book. Holy so shit! Right? Much.
0: And that thing of of that age, that like teen age, where in our memories we think like, oh yeah, I was pretty much fully formed at that point, and it's like, no, 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 no. I no, was
1: no. so amazed. That is one of the few books I have read in recent years that has surprised me multiple times as i read like it it continued to re like a little rubik's cube return itself and i i loved it and i hated her and i love that we were supposed to i mean she's indoctrinated the main character in that book is indoctrinated from the start and it's about the characters being actively deprogrammed oh i mean the ambition of that astonishing
0: yes and i I found myself thinking about it basically every time kosika was on the page because Every time she showed up, I had to remember she's a child. She's been on the throne since she was seven. And it was so easy to jump ahead or ascribe, you know, more quote unquote adult motives to the things that she was doing. But really it all stems and cascades from this more or less random roll of the dice that leads her to have
1: absolute power. But here's the entire question at the heart of Shades of Magic and Threads of Power. Is it random? This is the thing. The whole thesis behind Red London is that it's all random. Mm-hmm. But then you have what happens with Koska in White London, and there's nothing random there. And so you start to wonder, like, I mean, over the course of the whole series, I've always had magic as a kind of deetic force. Uh Like, magic is something that the Red Londoners worship, that the White Londoners try to control, but it is essentially a god. Oseron is a god. It is magic as God, magic with capital M. And then you start to wonder, are we dealing with a polytheistic God or are we dealing with a monotheistic God? Are we dealing with multiple incarnations of different gods or is it all one pool? And does it have an ego or an agency or an agenda?
0: I mean, just the ways in which the cosmology of this series is exploded, like standing in the middle of an orrery or something <laughs> in this book. And the, the fact that it happens more or less through new characters, I mean, specifically yeah. Tess. There are these elements of what Alucard can do where it's sort of been teased out that there's there's more than we know, which also like, of course there is. But then it's such a big philosophical idea in a way that I'm... I mean, talk about feeling like I could walk into these Londons. I feel like there there could be a whole shelf of books in a bookstore thinking about the threads of magic and like, what does it mean? (laughs) How do we explore it? Like something on the news.
1: Well, from a craft perspective, it's tricky though, because I don't build all those things into the beginning. What I do is try and build an organic system that can grow. Mm -hmm. And so when I design the system of magic as it was for a darker shade of magic, I hadn't designed Alucard yet. And then when we get to Alucard, it's like, okay, what can I do? Like, I always joke, we're not going to have dragons. Uh That would be a departure. But what's a growth? Okay, well, magic behaves in this way that we know all elements are on one spectral line, that all of them touch each other in some way. And so what if we start to think of it as threads, as lines, as a manifestation, as an aura, as something that you know, a gifted person would be able to see. Okay, so now we have carte and we we introduce his power in book two. And yet most readers, we don't have a hiccup there because readers are like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, how can we go further? So we get to test. And this is the flip side of that is the science of it, which is that like I wanted to have a magical industrial revolution. Over seven years, technology changes. And so it made sense to me that magic should evolve too. And that's where you get a character like the queen who is an inventor who is saying like, how can I take power and make it more elegant? How can I essentially design technology from it? And so I'm always really curious from, from world building perspectives, when time passes, I never want the world to feel like it doesn't change. Because that, to me, is a big red flag because it doesn't feel real then. And again, anything that makes things feel less real and less conceivable. But it is tricky when you're designing new magic. (laughs) Like there's an object, and I'll try to avoid spoilers, there's an object that comes up in this book that allows for the transference of power. But it's based on an object that came up in book three. And so then the question is like, okay, So much of what I had to design was how do we change? Like, what is the natural essential? And it kind of becomes a philosophical argument, which Mm -hmm. is like, you come, you come to a certain point and okay, everything makes sense and we accept that this is good for society. But everything we design for society could be pushed one step further into cataclysmic results. And so whenever I design a piece of magic or an ability like Tess to change the nature of magic to manipulate the threads, you have to take it to its most evil use because it's all about like the kind of the whole argument is that power changes the people. In, in all my books, power is a bad thing. When you could argue that for a character like Tess, it simply hasn't done that yet. She's very young. Whether it brings out the worst in her or the people who try to wrest that power from her bring out the worst in her. I never want power to feel interesting unto itself. The people are the ones who are manifesting it. And because people are as unique uh, as they are, magic has to feel unique when it lives in each and every one of them.
0: To follow on from these philosophical leanings. I'm curious about how you feel at this point in your career, fully two dozen books yeah. in, about trusting the reader, but also trusting yourself to take the time to put forward these big ideas and play with them, not just the sort of like, ah, and then like, oh, yes, power corrupts. Let me tell you a very straightforward narrative about it. It's like, no, let's think about this while the plot's happening.
1: I think. I mean, I have no faith in myself. I have faith in readers. <laughs> I have no, I, I mean, I as we've established, everything I do I, in a place of like creative trust fall and screaming all the way down. I think the way that I manage it is I know what I like as a reader and I don't like a story that just ponders. So for me then when I'm designing my stories, they have to work on four or five levels. Mm-hmm. One of those levels gets to be for the people who would like to philosophically ponder. But the like, that's the smallest level. The largest level needs to be, are you having fun? Are you having a good time? I read between 100 and 200 books a year and I am a very picky reader, yeah. but I'm not picky in the good, bad sense. I'm picky in the like, did I enjoy myself? Was that satisfying? And so the biggest tentpole that I'm working from as an author is, can I make a satisfying story? The next one is, can I make you think? Then the, the next one is... <laughs> because I'm extremely ornery, can I make you change your mind? So like with characters, I want you to change your mind. Yeah, it's usually a long con over the course of a series, not over the course of a single book. So I'll tend to introduce a character in one book, like Holland, and then make you revise your statements about them by the end. But like all the way down towards the bottom is the, if someone wanted to write a philosophy thesis on this, could they? It's not the loudest force for me. It's not the thing I care the most about. I mean, it, it's the broccoli and the mac and cheese, right? I want yep. you to think, but I want you to taste good food first. Like we gotta, work. also the greatest compliment that a reader can pay me is rereading. And so that's what I also think that the second and third reads are really great places for readers to start thinking, hey, oh my God, you know what I never thought of? The fact that like Kel says to George the Fourth makes a comment on magic and God that comes back.
0: Did you reread Shades or like, do you have like a codex somewhere?
1: I did not reread Shades, but I also have a near eidetic memory for everything I've ever written. Not everything I've read, but everything I've written. I reread my books so many times in the making of them, probably 30 to 40 times because of just how nitpicky I am. Once the book is published, my rule is generally to never reread it because it, it becomes a static object and I continue to grow. And I have like glossary documents that I consult, but then we decided it would be a fun promotional thing for me to do a Shades of Magic read-along where I, I, I did not have to reread the entire goddamn trilogy mm-hmm. And then like short form regurgitate it to people in 30 minute installments. So So basically I would like gulp it down and like memorize 150 pages and then like try to be entertaining while I fed it back to the reader. And I dreaded. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's been 10 years since I wrote A Darker Shade of Magic. I was like, I was 25 and I'm now 36. And I was like, this is my nightmare. I went in full of dread and I actually had a really good time. Like yeah. I was really proud. I was like, Aww. Like, of course, there were like a couple scene orders where I was like, I would have switched this or I would have planted that differently. But like on the whole, I was quite proud that I still really liked the book <laughs> which was terrifying. That's so
0: lovely. That feeling of like getting to revisit your past self and be like, hey, yeah. you weren't so bad.
1: It's the same reason though, like I've never been tempted to do a revision, like to mm-hmm. do a re-edit or like I had my very first novel, The Near Witch, went out of print after like 18 months and then would come back in print five years later with a new publisher and I was offered the opportunity to edit it. But I couldn't because I was like, I was 21 when I wrote that book. And at the time I was given the opportunity to edit it, I was 26. I was like, I'm a different person. Yeah. You could you could edit ad infinitum. Like I could just continue to revise Each book, based on the version of me that I am, at the time, and the thing is that the books have to become time capsules. They're not perfect, but they're done at a time when they suit who you are when you're writing them.
0: Lena Rather is a speculative fiction author and graduate student living in central New York. Her short fiction has appeared in Lightspeed, Podcastle, and Shimmer, and she has a Tor.com novella series, Our Lady of Endless Worlds, about devotion, empire, and nuns living in a giant slug in outer space. She cooks overly elaborate recipes, reads history, collects cool rocks, and is the author of a new book that moves from outer space to, you guessed it, London. This novella, A Season of Monstrous Conceptions, is set in the 17th century in London, during a whole cascading series of disasters. The city is trying to rebuild from the great fire, plagues abound, and more and more babies are being born, well, monstrous in one way or another. The story follows a young woman named Sarah Davis, who is one of these uncanny children grown into something like adulthood, apprenticing to a midwife, when she ends up working for none other than Sir Christopher Wren the architect who helped rebuild most of London after the fire. It is a taut novella. Not a single word is out of place. You sit down to read it, and just like the best Tor.com novellas, you have to finish it before you can get up and do anything else. For all of its tautness and its pace, it is also a richly realized slice of historical fiction. When Lena and I sat down, the first question that I had was really about where did the story begin?
3: So this story really began in a college thesis that I did on historical midwifery. There was this idea that they had in the period of maternal impression, which was where if a pregnant woman saw something sufficiently frightening, it might imprint <laughs> itself upon her fetus. So if you saw a wolf, for example, you might end up with a dog child. And all of these midwifery manuals were being published in this period, which was really sort of like the start of anatomy as a subject, the start of obstetrics and gynecology as a subject. And they're fantastically weird books. And they're these really weird illustrations of the children that you might have if you see all of these frightening fights. And so I've always had this idea of doing something with that, something with midwives in training who are in this world where all of these monsters are a possibility in your life. And it wasn't until sitting down to think of a book after Sisters that it really seemed to come together wanting to write more about, like, these female-led societies, about the relationships women have with each other, but also taking that more into the past rather than the future.
0: It's so cool to hear that you have studied this stuff because it felt, obviously, there are fantastical elements to it, but the tactile nature of midwifery was so present and I really I wanted to ask you about that how much research you had done how much more research did you do or was it the sort of thing where like you had done all this research and it was just percolating for a while
3: oh definitely like quite a lot I started writing it before I really dove into more research but then as little details came up I would learn more and more how strange the London of the 17th century really was It is just such an alien world to us, I think. It's so hard, even as someone who studied history for a long time, to really understand just how strange life must have been back then. I think in the book, there is a mention of after the Great Fire of London, the streets ran with molten lead because all of the lead had melted out of the church building. And just thinking about what that must have been like to see your city burning, and then there's just waves of hot metal rushing all around where you lived. That must have been a wild experience. And, you know, one of one of the things that I think is especially weird to us is how small it was. A lot of these people all knew each other if you were of sufficient social class. The city capital C of London is, you know, a mile in diameter. And one of the weird things about it is the laws inside those walls were different than the laws of the mm-hmm. one outside of those. And it's just, you know, how did people navigate constantly crossing back and forth between these legal worlds, these social worlds, and then kind of in this boiling pot of this little small area where you probably were familiar with basically everyone you saw in your day-to-day life. And when I was thinking about the main character for this book, I really wanted to write about someone who did stand on the cusp of a lot of those different social worlds. One thing about Sarah is she, you know, comes from the country, she moves to London, and then she sort of thrust into this really intoxicating, upper-class world of the Wrens. And she wants that power, that wealth, and yet it's not really achievable because the social mobility isn't there. But also she's queer. And in one scene in the book, she has experience leaving the city of London and this more restrictive morality laws there and going to the South Bank where there were these theaters that were springing up outside of those restrictive laws where there was, we know, a queer subculture of Molly houses, probably also of women we would now say are lesbians, although that's less documented. And seeing the ways in which You could be one person on one side of the river and another person on the other.
0: And then she's contrasted with Sir Christopher Wren. It was so much fun to see him in this book as a character. I mean, like, if you ever spend any time at all in London, you run into, oh, here's this Sir Christopher Wren building. Here's that Sir Christopher Wren building. He's very important to our history. When did he come into the atmosphere of this book?
3: I really wanted to write something that had a magic system that was really tied into the architectural fabric of the city. I think place is so interesting. Place has so much weight on how we feel, what we do, that I've always wanted to explore that more. And in London, it really only makes sense if you're talking about London after the Great Fire and talking about architecture to talk about Christopher Run because he did personally have a hand in rebuilding just so much of the city. I also think he's an interesting historical figure because he's someone whose name a lot of people know, but probably not someone who people have a lot of preconceived notions about that you have to fight against when you're writing Mm. a fictionalization of a historical figure. And also, he's someone where we don't have a lot of his own personal writing. His son actually wrote a biography of him that is one of the main sources for his life. But we don't know a lot of his inner thoughts. And so, on the one hand, it, all, it made that kind of easy to say, I'm not defying history here, although there are a few points <laughs> where I ended up fudging reality a little bit. But, you know, I, I think I stayed fairly true to the facts of his life, more or less. And he made a really good upper-class foil for a somewhat lower-class midwife.
0: I love the way that you said that he's somebody who there's name recognition, but not a lot of character recognition. And yet he is so integral to our modern understanding of London. And you give him this great line where he's talking to Sarah about essentially the fabric of reality and London as a sort of focal point or a nexus and there is that feeling, right, about London as a place where you could move across time and space and dimensions. There's something ineffable about that city. And I guess I i just wanted to know what it was that called to you about London.
3: Yeah, I think certainly since I was a kid, you know, London has been that like magical old city that you always want to visit. That is the setting of so many fantasy stories. Even just being a kid and watching like the History Channel documentaries, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're all about London. I think certainly part of that is cultural. I think that's a very Anglo-Sphere way to feel. But it is a city with thousands and thousands of years of history, and that's something that in America, at least, you know, you will almost never experience. We do have historical sites that are thousands of years old, but they're not preserved in mass the way mm-hmm. they are in London. And certainly we're not educated about the cultures that built those the way that we feel some sort of cultural connection to the English, uh, however fictionalized that might be. (laughs) Um, And so I've always wanted to set a story there. I think it is a, a little cliched maybe, but I think just there's something magical about it in at least the American imagination.
0: Yeah. And there's something magical about the moment that this book is set too. The history nerd in me really lit up when Sarah was talking about being able to read texts in the vernacular versus in the Latin. I was thinking about like my AP Euro classes and what my teacher was talking about. Like, can you imagine how powerful it was? to suddenly have access to all of this information. And I mean, you know, that class was the early 2000s, so it's a little bit pre-internet explosion. But that feeling of being present for an opening of knowledge and the sense of possibility, you did such a marvelous job of capturing both sides of that. How wonderful to be able to share more information and also what unimaginable horrors can come out of that. And I wanted to know about striking that balance through your writing.
3: It is such an interesting moment in time where suddenly there is this growth of literacy, especially among people who have professions like Sarah does. Also, it is fairly recently post the English Reformation. So prior to this, having the Bible printed in English wouldn't have been allowed. Masses would not have Mm -hmm. been done in English. Suddenly there's a real cultural belief in everyday people having access to both theological and secular knowledge in a way that's... Fairly new. And one of the things I think is most important to me about Sarah's character. and it's a feeling that I've had as someone who I think has like stepped up social classes in my own life from where I was born to where I am now is this feeling of peering through an open door and seeing all of these possibilities that are open to you and also, though, the difficulty of wanting that. And in some cases, the corrupting nature of wanting that power, that, you know, social cachet, those things that come from being able to educate yourself and move up social classes, but can be really corrupting to your own values.
0: Yeah, and I really like the ways in which you dealt with that for Sarah. I mean, I loved the moment where Mrs. June is like, I hope you're sleeping with him. And Sarah's just kind of totally flabbergasted, like what, like I'm, I'm getting something else. And the way that Mrs. June is like, oh honey, you have no idea. You know, and that would have been true if this was a forbidden romance kind of story. And the fact that it was instead about information and knowledge felt like this really delicious transgression. The way that they are both able to use each other kind of openly. And certainly, I think Sarah does end up feeling a little bit hard done by. But I liked that everyone was experiencing this explosion of knowledge at the same time, but in in different ways. It really put me in that time and place in a cool way.
3: Thanks. Yeah, I think the other thing that I really wanted to get across with Sarah is that she comes from a place where she's kind of the unwanted daughter of an uneducated family who becomes the resented wife of a man who doesn't really like that she's in many ways his equal. And then she comes to London and again becomes sort of the difficult apprentice of a woman who wants her (laughs) for her abilities and not necessarily for her as a person. And so the feeling of having someone say to her, I do see you as powerful in your own right. Like, you have not only a raw power, but the capacity to control it yourself in the way that surrenders. does. And she looks at him and she thinks, like, I know that I'm being used here. I'm aware of what's happening. But God, I want that. I think that, that's yeah. a feeling that I really wanted readers to get when they see her make the decisions that she makes in this story.
0: I mean, knowledge is so intoxicating. And I loved that this book, there's a curiosity powering this book that really spoke to me, this this drive to know more. And also there was a little bit of a necessary slap on the wrist. You know, don't try to know everything because inevitably that goes poorly for more or less everybody. And I like that you were using midwives as the engine for that. I mean, even right up until this present moment, it feels like this is one of those spaces where science is still forced to leave a little bit of room for intuition. My mom is not a midwife, but she has successfully predicted the biological sex of every child who she has come across in utero over 30 years. Like, she's, she's never been wrong. That's amazing. And there's sort of this, like, what is that about? And she, of course, leans into the witchy side of it all. But there is that little bit where she's like, I don't know how I know, I just do. You know, as much knowledge as we are able to uncover in the universe there's always going to be something we don't know or something that we have to intuit or rely on our intuition for and the way in which intuition and knowledge have to play off of each other even the ways in which the society quote-unquote of midwives they are as reputable as they can be but society still distrusts them a little bit regardless of whether it's actual witchcraft or just the perception of witchcraft Do do you have thoughts about like the fuzziness of that line?
3: Yeah, I think midwives are especially cool, especially in this period, because they are one of the few organized societies of women that we really have a lot of information about. There actually was an attempt slightly before this book was set to have a royal guild of midwives. It was proposed to the king. It was shot down. And part of why (laughs) it was shot down was because it was proposed by a woman, Elizabeth Selyre, who was later put on trial for treason as part of a Catholic plot against the English monarchy. And we think now that that was largely a setup. But it is interesting that you have these women, too, who are in very intimate positions of people of power. Throughout English history, there's several times where midwives are accused of swapping noble babies or poisoning a mother. And I think what leads to a lot of the distrust against them is there's this frission between the spaces that they have access to and their actual social class that other people are very aware of. And especially as you move out of the period of home births where your mother or aunt is going to be acting as a midwife into a period where it is standard to have an outside midwife, that awareness of you're bringing a stranger into your house in your most vulnerable moments becomes really sharply apparent. And I, I think a lot of people will ascribe some of our current lack of trust for midwives, I suppose, to the anatomical revolution that happened about 50 years after this book is set, but is beginning in this period where suddenly medical school trained male obstetricians really came to the fore. Began a standardized practice of anatomy that excluded female students and upended that idea that only a woman can handle women's problems, quote unquote, that really (laughs) was prevalent through the end of the 17th century. I do think it started before that. I think that there's always been a weird frision in the midwifery profession and a sense of distrust or a connection to this idea of witchcraft that comes from more home remedy type medicine being practiced. And it has it come and gone in waves, but is a really long-lived belief. It's super fascinating to look at books by men and by women in this period about obstetrics, because the ones done by men have these really weird—I mean, they're, they're very accurate and very kind of cool illustrations, but it'll be um, just a torso of a pregnant woman with, like, the skin peeled back for you to see the uterus. And then if you go look at the women's ones— it's these really strange like bottles floating in space with little babies inside them. And you think like, well, what use could that be? It's just like a a weird bottle. (laughs) But it's because it's trying to teach people who are doing this all by touch. And so you're not actually going to see the uterus because you'll never be allowed inside of an anatomy room, but you will be using your hands to feel inside the body. And so that's what they're trying to get across in those illustrations. And it's a really kind of kinetic way of getting this information across. Although there was actually a woman working at the turn of the 18th century in France who invented something called the machine, which was a stuffed puppet torso the size of a woman with a real pelvis inside that you could have um, either a doll or potentially, we think, a mummified fetus that you could pull in and out and replicate different birth complications. And that was a real innovation in obstetrical training at the time. So, you can imagine seeing, like, oh, here's the layers of muscle, not super useful. Seeing, here's what it's going to feel like when you are, you know, delivering this baby or trying to turn a baby, very useful.
0: That's incredible. I'm so tempted to just, like, go on asking you about all of the cool history stuff. Because obviously, uh, spoilers, no spoilers. There are some deviations from what we know history to have been. But this book. Really has like a sooty, smoky, gritty feeling to it, where I'm like, yes, I, I think this is what history felt like. And again, I keep thinking too about the push-pull of progress and tradition. And there's a scene where Christopher Wren is talking about these nexus points. And what if we were to imagine a bunch of them and they have been failing? And this is one of the last ones. And I was struck by the irony of him talking about this, where he's just like, progress, progress, progress. And we don't know what we're losing. You know, as marvelous as these sudden incredible developments are, there's no way of knowing what will result in terms of what we lose. Storytelling-wise and history-wise, person-wise, I really liked how you wove that in with the fear of these monstrous conceptions and this tension, this tension between Sarah's world and Siren's world, but also between this past world and our world, and then also the resonances, the similarities.
3: Yeah, I think everything I've written has been really influenced by history. I think in many ways, I am a historian before I am a writer, um, although that mm. maybe has shifted over the past several years. Um, for example, in the uh, Sisters of the Vast Black series, um, that was really influenced by reading about monastic orders in the medieval world, where you have these vast expanses of space and time that can't easily be crossed between the church and like your little nunnery out in the wilds of Germany or whatever. And so I wanted to replicate some of those logistical constraints in a future setting where communication takes a long time, not because you're in the wilds of Germany in the dark ages but because you're in the wilds of space in the future. But I think it was really fun to really try to delve in and research a period really thoroughly and spend a lot of time with it and still figure out, how do I take this like one step into the fantastic and have you feel not only the magic of history and some of the like grossness of history too, (laughs) but also that sense of like wonder that I think must have existed in that period where so much stuff was suddenly being known for the very first time. I think we do make technological discoveries really quickly in our day, but oftentimes they're not technological discoveries that necessarily change the total fabric of our life. And that mm-hmm. was something that was happening then and probably continued to happen through the 20th century. Things happen and all of a sudden, your entire understanding of the world might change. You might you know, learn that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. You might get indoor plumbing in your house. And these are all things that must have been total shifts in a lot of people's worldviews. I think Sarah is a character who is very messy. And I think as you get through the book, you see that suddenly that comes into conflict with Christopher Wren's very Enlightenment Man ideas of, we will order the world, we will make a perfect world. She's queer. She has been kind of exiled from her home. She lives in this sort of liminal space where she's professional but not professional. And all those things, like, often do make her life harder, but they also are important pieces of who she is. And that was something I was trying to strike, too, is I think there can be a tendency to say, like, oh, you know, being kind of a, a person on the margins or a person with these contradictions is great. Like, we should celebrate everyone being who they are. And it's true, but it often it does make your life harder. It is difficult. Um, and so she has to come into conflict with that idea of, oh, you want an ordered world, and that ordered world doesn't necessarily include the person who I am. And does that mean, should I want that too? Would that make my life easier? Or would is that something actually that would destroy me? I'm doing my thesis on saints relics and the belief in saints relics. It's really alien to me to have kind of that level of... Fates. I think it's really interesting. And I wanted to write a little bit about being so connected to this power that you ultimately have almost no ability to understand. And you can try and you can experiment, but there is just something outside of your control that part of you is beholden to. And I think there are points in the book where Sarah has this magic that she's being asked to use, and and really up until the end, the only time that she's able to use it is really when she's in these like moments of blind anger and then what happens is things that are terrible and awful but even though eventually she comes to have some understanding of it it's always this partially alien thing and I wanted the magical realm in this book to f- to feel that way too that it's there and it's exerting a force on the world and uh you know the characters have to interact with it and it's all these terrible things are happening because of what's happening in this realm beyond our comprehension. But ultimately, you just sort of have to go on faith and like hope that what you're doing is the right thing and work with an incomplete understanding. And as someone who's like kind of a control freak, that is not a place that I sit very easily in in my life. And so I wanted to write about a world in which the characters had to do that. They just had to go and trust that they were doing the right thing.
0: If you've spent much time at all on the literary internet over the last decade or so, it is almost certain that at some point you came across the Southerns' Twitter account. Henry Southern Limited is the oldest bookshop in London, one of the oldest bookstores in the world, and its Twitter account went from being sort of a generic antiquarian bookshop's Twitter account to something much, much stranger and more interesting and more dynamic. It turned out that a new bookseller at the time, Oliver Darkshire, had come in and taken over the account. He now lives in Manchester, England with his husband and his neglectfully curated collection of books. But this past year, he published a book called Once Upon a Tome, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller, that is about his arrival at Southerns, everything that he learned while he was working there, which, yes, includes many of the most wondrous stories from the Twitter account, The ghost of the late Mr. Sutherland, the strange stacks of first editions and other weird ephemera, the store's brushes with history, there's a great one about the Titanic, and all sorts of other absolutely wonderful, magical things. I knew when I was putting together an episode about London that I was going to have to try to talk to Oliver, and I was so delighted to find that he is exactly who you think he would be in person. He's exactly the same person as he is on the page or on the screen. We had a wonderful conversation about the importance of books, of place, of history, of what it means to choose to invest yourself in this life. The thing about
2: old bookstores, particularly in this almost square meter of London that we occupy, there are loads of bookstores, all very of a similar vibe to Southerns. There's so many of these bookstores crammed into this one space, and they've all... They're almost like old squabbling axes, you know, they're, they're um, like a gay polycule, they've switched partners, switched stores, switched rooms, so many times between each other, that nobody knows where anyone is anymore. And there's a lot of history, but it's all confused and tied together in ways that are really quite obscure. The ones used to own a bookstore across the street. Before that, it was in the one next door, and they just, when they wanted to move, they just poked holes in the walls and passed the books through because it was easier than moving onto the street, <laughs> going through the door, you know, it's messy, it's about survival. And the bookstores that survive do it by adapting and by moving when necessary. It does get messy, but it's quite fun. I mean, I used to think that in order to work in a bookstore, you had to have some measure of patience. And I'm not sure it's that anymore, because I'm not a very patient person. I'm quite a grumpy person. (laughs) What it really requires is character. being able to stake your presence to a mask somewhere and not be changed too much by all the requests and nonsense and people that come in constantly (laughs) barraging you day after day with things a retail worker should not be expected to deal with i think you have to have you know be able to cling to something in a sea of regret um that's what it requires I moved up here, and then I kind of thought, well, like, I'll phase it out maybe slowly, and let someone else take over. And but I've just been, I've ended up kind of going down every week or two to cover shifts. I feel like I'm on like one of those ghostly galleons, and I'm just wedded to this ghost ship for the rest of my eternal existence, and there's just no escaping it. But it does feel strange not being in the store every day. You know, the pulse of the place changes, and so I'll turn up there, and there are new artifacts appeared or like a chest is open or the bookshelves are empty and i just have no explanation for it and no one can explain what happens. and without being <laughs> there every day it's okay the mysteries are multiplying in a way that i find quite, quite uncomfortable <laughs> the other day i went down to the store last week to cover for someone i sat down at a desk and there was a weird shaped bag on my desk with the polystyrene around it was huge three times size of my head you know single day was heavy i was like carrier what is what is this what is this and she was like oh it's the keg and i was like what keg and she was like, oh the weird shaped Honey ceramic keg that's been sitting on top of the cupboards for five years, dripping weird stuff. I was like, Well, what is it doing? I'm like, someone bought it. And I don't know whether we're allowed to sell biohazards <laughs> or if there's some kind of. Cause I'd never, if this part, this, uh, people will buy and sell the fixtures if they can get away with it. So I walked in and walked, walked in Thank you very much. I'll have that money. And I was like, Well, I guess there's no trace of it officially on the records because I don't have a catalog that. But I'd forgotten that existed, and the stories yeah, the coming and going of those things, day and night, is, keeps it keeps it alive. If there's a shared history, and it is a literary history, Bloomsbury, Soho, and Mayfair, although I know writers live in those in various houses and churn out books, and when the writers, are, are publishers, and when there are publishers, there are bookstores. But at the same time, there's good places, bookstores in London, because they built up from the ground up on top of each other, higgledy-piggledy in a lot of cases, so there are sellers. Well, there are sellers, there are booksellers also. Where it's cold dark places to store books, you'll find booksellers. Yeah, a lot of these books have been there since time immemorial, and why move? It's a shame because a lot of it is disappearing. A lot of bookstores have moved out lately of the area, purely because of the prices. And because people keep buying the buildings nearby and then demolishing them and saying, oh, the daisy, and they get slapped with a fine that they can pay because if you're rich, the rules don't apply to you. But it's fine. I'm not mad about it. The opposite opposite has gone knocked down, and they're like, "Well, we didn't realise we weren't allowed to knock it down." It's like it's hard a dilly, mate. You can't just knock down a facade. You can't pick a demolition thing, and then are like, oh yeah, whoops, the daisy." And in London, particularly in that square area, where all those buildings have so much history, yeah, each one of them is a host to a thousand ghosts, or whatever. And everyone knows everyone knows it. And when someone comes along with it, it's really noticeable when someone knocks a hole through it. <laughs> there was a there was a point where. Gosh, a few years ago now. I think it was Amazon decided they were going to, they were going to stop booksellers in certain Eastern European countries from selling on their platform. Mm-hmm. And the booksellers, I've never seen them kick up more of a crap storm in, in my life. All of them immediately, lines opposed they pulled their books, and I was in caves. Yeah. Which is unusual for them. They don't cave for anything. So the good news is you don't ever feel particularly isolated, because you have these associations that are really that ancient, firstly, and don't take any crap. Um... Mm-hmm. That you know, it feels a bit less lonely. But there is also a sense of you know being picked off one by one. in, in, in another respect, they so get priced down. Nothing anyone can do about that. You can't take on the whole economy. Yeah. Um, mm. And there is a case of you know, are, are we going to be the last people in this bookstore? Are we 250 of the booksellers. Are we the ones that can let it down? It's nice when people care about things. And it sounds really silly. But even the sillier the thing, the, almost the nicer it is. Like, and and by caring about red books or something else that's silly or mugs or ceramic, honey, cake jars that drip suspicious liquids. Like, whatever it is that you care about. Why care about that? you, By extension, you care about something else. So if you care about your books, you care about the house there, and, and your community know, in your bookstore, where that comes from, the people who work there. But, but caring about things is how you fix problems, because you're you're inherently invested in the people that are operating around them. It's nihilism and not caring about anything and being tricked into thinking that everything is hopeless. That is the lie, because then you don't do anything. But care about little things that, that don't seem relevant. And you end up caring about everything else. So it's a step in stone, you know.
0: If it gives you any idea just how much I truly love London, the whole time I have been working on this episode, from when I read these books, through the interviews, through the editing process to right now, as I am recording these voiceovers, I just keep thinking about what I would do if I was in London right now. I could pop over to the cast recordings shop in Seven Dials go see a show at the National, certainly. Maybe get some noodles at Wagamama or some Indian food at Dishoom. Go to any number of the amazing bookstores. The list goes on. It is a city that captures the imagination. And if it hasn't captured yours, that's okay too. There are so many cities and so many stories in the world. If I had the time, I would go visit both literally and literarily, all of them. The next time you are in the city that you love or a city that you love, take a moment to soak up some of the stories. Look around, see the places where history bleeds across time and finds its way into the present. Something incredible, right? Thinking that hundreds, even thousands of years ago, there were people walking over that same street. Maybe it didn't quite look the same. Maybe a lot of things were different, But as seems to be a theme of this season, maybe it inspires a little bit of confidence that a thousand years from now, somebody, something, might still be walking over these same streets and wondering about the stories that you left behind. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lencioni of Evelyn, Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the teams at Tor and at Lit Hub, and to all of you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks.